Wimbledon is done. A new piece of history has been made and another logistical challenge of staging one of the world's biggest sporting events in the middle of a global pandemic has been successfully completed. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers. Welcome to this week's ATP podcast in which we'll look back on events from the past two weeks. We'll hear from one of the leading Serbian TV commentators on how Novak Djokovic is perceived in Serbia. And we'll take a trip down memory lane with the 1972 Wimbledon champion Stan Smith. But let's start with this year's Wimbledon winners. And I'm delighted to be joined by Christopher Clary, the tennis correspondent of the New York Times and the crafter of some of the most beautiful writing in today's tennis. So, Chris, just come straight from the court. What do you make of Novak Djokovic's 20th Grand Slam title? Well, thank you for that comment, Chris. I appreciate that. But, um, you know, geez, what a... What a remarkably resilient performance again from him. And you could just sense that Bertini had the hunger and the desire and some of the talent required to cause big problems for him. But Novak is such a great problem solver and so versatile. He won that match from the back. He won the match uh, taking on Bertini's power with the returns and the forehand and, and countering it. He, he came to net when he needed to. He served and volleyed some on big points. Just a resilient performance. And there were two games and the fourth set that, for me, defined the way he, he played over so many years with just the hold um, and then the break that set up the end of the fourth set were just tremendous tennis. And uh, full credit to him. And we have a tie game, 2020-20. For me, the enormity of the occasion was summed up in the fact that you understand Berrettini being nervous in the first set, which he clearly was. But Djokovic was as well. That was not a great first set. Yes, I think, I don't know uh, what the motivations were within him, whether he was feeling the moment or whether he just was having trouble finding his bearings today. It would be interesting to know, but you could definitely sense he was tight. Two double faults in the opening game, and you don't see that very often. And missed targets, very much so. And you could sense he was off balance and tight. And Berrettini really had an opportunity, and that was a critical moment. If he'd been able to seize those and take the first set early a little quicker and they can get his momentum going, and I think it would have been maybe a different match in some ways, but I think the ultimate outcome would have been the same. How much was that one on belief? Because in tennis terms, they were pretty even. I think it was certainly Novak's experience not having uh, the need to panic after losing the first set and uh, after losing a lead as, as well. I think he, uh, he knows deep down he has that confidence that's built up uh, over so many years and also recent success that shows him he can do anything when it comes to recovering in a match. But I don't think it was quite as straightforward on the tactics as Berrettini might have made it appear at times. I think Novak did a brilliant job of taking away his inside-out forehand, which is such a great weapon for, for Berrettini. And Novak played amazing defense on that. He even returned serve in ways to get himself in position to take on the next forehand. And it was really a, a master class in tactics in that regard. And I think he made it hard for Berrettini to find a way to win points. Where does this leave Berrettini? I mean, he's had a, a mixed year, uh, did well at the ATP Cup. Then he had the injury at the Australian Open, did well in Madrid. Okay at the French Open, final here. Where's this left him? You know, he's still a young player in terms of experience at this level and in terms of uh, his development of his game. And boy, I mean, he has huge weapons with the forehand and the serve. He can improve his net game, obviously. You can see that today. He can improve what I call the cat and mouse game, which Novak is so brilliant at, those little touch points around the net, which I think really hurt Berrettini today. Um, he's improved his backhand some already. We know that, but he can improve it more. So I think you know, his upside is still very, very big, and he moves well for a guy his size. And I like his demeanor on the court. He's very combative, and you could tell he was getting into the points and into the moment. Obviously had his adaptation period at the start of the match, but I think he, he played a very worthy match today. And where does it leave Djokovic? You mentioned we have the 2020-20 tie, but for Djokovic, the pure calendar year Grand Slam is on, as is the Golden Slam. 
all eyes on Novak, as they should be. He has earned that and by his performances. And it, I've been covering tennis, you know, like you, Chris, for 30-plus years, and this is the first time we've ever seen a, a man come this close to this kind of achievement in our careers. And it's been since 1969 in the men's game, since anybody even really got close. So here we are, and he's close. He's close. And if he doesn't get the Olympic gold medal, which I know he'll chase, you know, he's still got a chance at the Grand Slam on his best surface in, at the U.S. Open. We talk about the history, man. We talk about making history. Do you get the sense that this is a remarkable period in the history of our sport, which is still in its modern-day form, less than 150 years old? And you can't compare apples to apples across the decades entirely. Obviously, the players that were playing in the earlier stages of tennis were not playing as many of the Grand Slam tournaments as consistently. It wasn't their target the way it is for this generation of players. But I think because we've had so many great rivalry matches over the last 20 years, that has made men's tennis so special. And to have these three guys all push each other, none of them would be as good without the other two. And Andy Murray played a role in that you know, in an earlier time in this, in this process. But I think the history, particularly for Novak, even more so than Roger and Rafa, I would say, has been a real driving force for him. And to have those guys already above him all the way through. And, you know, today he reeled them all in. He's already reeled them in in many ways, but today he reeled them in and, and created that 2020-20 situation. But, you know, it's, uh, it has been a privilege to watch it. And I thought you couldn't beat, for me, Sampras Agassi and Becker Edberg and all that, but they've beaten it. Well, our congratulations go to Novak Djokovic, also to Ash Barty for her women's title, which clearly meant so much to her and to her country. Our congratulations also to the remarkable Matej Pavic and Nikola Mektic, who took the men's doubles title, their eighth title of the year, and to Neil Skupski, who won the mixed doubles with Desiree Kravchik. We'll have more from Christopher Clary in a few minutes as we continue to look back on the talking points from the Wimbledon fortnight. But sticking with the final, I sought out the views of Nebosha Vishkovic, one of Serbia's leading tennis commentators and reporters who's been at Wimbledon commentating for Sport Club, the rights holder for Serbian television. I started by asking him when people in Serbia first sensed that they had someone special. Well, maybe when he won his first Masters title, Masters 1000. Actually, you know, uh, I think that you know that because you did your research about tennis in Serbia and you know that uh, in my country tennis wasn't so popular before Djokovic. Even we did have, uh, uh, we had some good players before Novak, but you know, uh, people in Serbia, they only uh, say you're okay if you're the best. So when Novak... uh, took his first Masters title, maybe that that was the point when everybody uh, started to think that we have something special and of course when he won his first Grand Slam 2018 in Australia. How big is he now? I mean clearly he is Mr Serbia to the rest of the world but does Serbia get used to him to the point where they take him for granted or is he still a national hero? Maybe uh, uh, the one who loves him loves him uh, love him more than uh, 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 the other athletes you said. But that one who hates him hates him more. I don't know how to describe it. You know, it's uh, it's maybe it's maybe uh, in DNA of Serbian people. You know, when we love, we love. When we hate, we hate. And uh, uh, there are many people that I really adore Novak. And uh, 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 they literally uh, uh, live for for his uh, victories, and uh, there is, uh, 
I mean, that's the vast majority, let's be honest. But there are some, some people who are really, uh, for the reason I couldn't explain uh, for sure, who don't like him. Because around the world he polarizes opinion. Yeah. There are plenty who like him and there yeah. are plenty who say, well, I admire him, but I don't like him the way I like Federer or Nadal. Yeah. So you're saying that's the same even in Serbia? Uh, we can say that there's many people who think that he's too aggressive. But at the other hand, the vast majority is going to say, yeah, but that's us. That's how one Serbian actually act, you know, uh, with passion, uh, with, 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 with some mix of emotions, with love, with hate, with everything. Uh, yeah. There was, uh, uh, when he won a uh, match against uh, Kudla, I think, uh, you know uh, that he uh, started to shout uh, um, to the fans. And uh, when I was commenting that, I said that uh, it's not a good behavior, but that's who he is. And if you took it from him, it's not going to be in Djokovic anymore. Does a 20th title making him level with Federer and Nadal, does that change his image in Serbia? Or have people come to expect that he would eventually uh, be on the same level as Federer and Nadal? Uh, people, people, uh, they are sure that he's going to be better than them. You know, that he's going to have more Grand Slams and he, that he's going to be a GOAT. They're sure. And do you feel that when Djokovic finishes with his tennis career, that people will appreciate him more because they will miss him? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, actually, I don't know. Uh, I think that he's going to be present when he finishes his career somehow uh, in sport, in maybe politics, who knows. Uh, but he's kind of guy that uh, he likes to be uh, in the light. He has to be in the center of attention. So uh, I think that uh, people is not going to miss him in that way. He's not going to play tennis, but he's going to be there doing something, something probably very important. And do you think he has left a legacy? I mean, obviously, we, you know, the, the, the next generation of players like Laszlo, Jere and Filip Krajinovic have not achieved the same levels as Djokovic, but that was only to be expected. Do you think that there will be a healthy number of top 100 Serbian players as a result of Djokovic's achievements? Well, there are always, uh, already is. Uh, Serbia had five players in top 50, which is unbelievable. We are so, such a small country with, I don't know, maybe six seven, million? six million. Okay, yeah, <laughs> you know better than me. And uh, 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 to have such amount of great players, yeah, it's, it's mainly because of him, because he showed the path. Uh, and uh, uh, um, I think that uh, one of the reasons that Serbia, in what, uh, at one point, had the best uh, male single player in the world, female single player, the best double player in the world, uh, and also a couple of uh, guys who were in top 20, like Tipsarevic and uh, Tritsky and so on, is because they wanted to be first in, his, uh, in their own backyard. You know, there's a famous uh, quote from Tipsarovic. He said, uh, I was eighth in the world, but come on, uh, I'm not first in New Belgrade, which is part of Belgrade, because Novak was there in New Belgrade, you know. That was Nebosha Vishkovic of the Serbian television broadcaster Sport Club. I'm still with Christopher Clary of the New York Times, and I should declare here that I've counted Chris as a friend ever since we, well, we shared neighboring desks at the Australian Open press room back in the 1990s. And 
I seem to remember trying to explain the rules of cricket to you and seeing your eyes glaze over when I explained <laughs> that all four results were still possible and you looked and you thought, well, there's only two teams, so surely that means only three results. Do you remember that? I don't, and I could use a refresher on cricket. I still, to this day, my eyes glaze over. It's no fault of cricket. It's all a fault of mine. Well, then, let's stick to another sport played on grass, which is tennis, at least for four or five weeks of the year. Do you think we'll ever see Roger Federer and Andy Murray at Wimbledon again? No doubt in the uh, Royal Box, without a doubt. Probably together, and, and um, yeah, who knows, doubles. Or, but I, I have to say, Chris, having watched them both here and, and seeing what they're up against, I don't think we'll see them playing in the main draw of singles both again. I don't think so. I mean, they're both at that stage where they're good enough to carve a career for another two or three years as doubles players if they want to. I'm not sure that either of them does, though. I've always felt that if Federer truly loved tennis as much as it seems he does, and he really wanted to enjoy the tour more, what a fantastic thing he could do. I mean, Nevertilova played on in the women's game and doubles for a while as well, but I don't see that. I mean, he's, he's asked a lot of his family, and his children are you know, already you know, pretty fairly fairly far along with the two twins uh, yeah they're nearly 12 so it's been there's a lot going on I I feel like he put so much into this comeback the second one of his really and I know he um, he wouldn't have done that just to come back for a couple of tournaments so I think it would be a very hard choice for him right now he's obviously trying to get himself back to a level where he can compete again and he's shown flashes of some very fine tennis in the last month or two but it's just a lot a lot to ask to see him to come back to be really competitive at the top. But when you saw him against Hukac in the quarterfinals, did you get the impression this was a guy that can't do it anymore or that he just didn't have enough matches? Because it's only about his 12th match of the year. I think having watched a lot of these, these greats come back later in their careers, it just seemed to me on a given day he can do it. On, really on any given day still. We saw flashes of tennis, especially best of three sets. But I just that, that to me seemed like one of those given days when he couldn't do it. I think his level can still be very high, but I just don't think his level can be as high consistently and that's what it takes in a best of five set you know seven match slam well to take players about 15 years younger than uh, Federer do you think this has been a breakthrough event for Denis Shapovalov and Hubert Hurkacz I think for Hurkacz in particular obviously he won Miami so you know he can play on a hard court and now we've seen him on grass and I talked to his coach Craig Boynton uh, before the tournament at, at some length and he really felt that when Hubie as he calls him is finished his best surface will be grass in his mind. So it's. I was interesting to hear his coach say that and to watch the big results here because he hadn't really done that much at Wimbledon before. So I think her catch is going to be a, a real factor uh, on courts just where the ball is um, you know, bouncing relatively low, medium height because he can really has a compact game and seems to be very athletic. But uh, Chapeau is the one I think is something special. And I think anybody who loves tennis watches him and goes, oh, you, kinda, you, you cheer for that style of tennis – and I also felt like just watching him, the eye test in this tournament against the best players and watching him handle pressure, handle moments, his game just fits. Something special about it. He's the closest to Federer of his generation. And I think for those of us who worry about the loss of Federer, Shapovalov is the big hope. Do you think that he's still just learning and then give him a couple of years and he'll be there? Or do you think that the way he had so many opportunities against Djokovic in the semifinal and couldn't convert sort of bodes ill for him? That's a great question. One quick thing I would say about what your first comment there is I think Sissipas is also part of that um, that legacy of Roger. Not just because of the one-hander, I think just the overall athleticism around the court. He's not as flashy or as eye-catching a player in some ways as, uh, as Dennis is. He's more efficient, I think, a bit more balanced. And Chapovalov, I don't think he can help himself. He's got this attacking mentality. He just needs to express that attacking tennis. 
And I am concerned about his mentality, but I think I can make him fascinating because I think he's going to be fighting himself a lot. You can see what emotional guy he is. I mean, he was in tears at the handshake. You can see how much it meant to him. And he knows now, I think he knows in his heart that he has the game to be a factor against these top, top players. He can feel the change out there. So I think he's got to come to grips with that. But I really, really hope he makes it and becomes at least a, a factor at the slams more consistently. A couple of other players have done well here. One thinks of Martin Fucevic, Felix Auger-Aliassime, and also Sebastian Korda. I mean, that was a bizarre final set against Hachanov with all those breaks of serve. But it's been a good tournament for the Americans, not just Korda, but uh, uh, two boys in the boys' singles final. I mean, it's, it's a lot of the work that Patrick McEnroe put in is really starting to uh, to bear fruit. That's a good point. I mean, and Jose Higueras and and many others as well on that, on that USTA team and all the private coaches in the U.S., I got to say, as a longtime you know, American tennis writer, the question I get the most from in my country is, so what's up with the men? You know, will we ever have another great American men's player? I don't think, you know, in any time in the near future, we're going to see anything like what you and I saw when we first met with that great generation of American men with Sampras Agassi Courier and Todd Martin, Michael Chang. We're not going to see that again, I don't think. But we can certainly see great players again. And I think, interestingly, Corda. Um, is a guy who comes from a great background, but not a great American background. His father and mother were both, you know, Czech players. So, but I mean, there's the, that's a feature of you know the two boys in the final. One is of Indian extraction, one is of Russian extraction. I mean, this is the melting pot that's the USA, and in a way, it's coming to the fore now. It's true, and a lot of our great players, you know, Agassi, Sampras, Chang, it's all uh, families of immigrants, often for, often first generation or second generation immigrants, and it's it's a great font of players for us, and it always has been. Um, so I think. I think I'm, I'm encouraged. I don't think we're going to see a golden age of men's tennis in the U.S. again, but I think you see a guy like Korda looking at the structure of his game, his temperament on the court. I think he just ran out of gas in that fifth set against Hachinov. But um, he's got a lot of upside. I think his serve can improve a lot. He's five. He moves well. He can move a bit better. So there's a lot of things you can see that can improve, and he's already competitive. So to me, he's a top-10 player if everything goes well in terms of the body. And I think you can see a guy like Taylor Fritz, I think, is a, when he gets his game together and everything, could be a top 20 player. And then you got a guy like Opelka, who is just an uh, X factor, obviously has shown some tendency to break down in, in best of five matches, but he's got such weapons, and he moves pretty well for a guy his size, almost seven feet. So there's some players there that you think really could uh, make an impact at the men's game. But the other thing is, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of guys already established who are pretty young. So it's a, already dense at the top of the pyramid. If I had to put you on the spot and say who do you – uh, most expect to be the next American male Grand Slam singles champion? Who would you go for? I, I just think it's just tough with the guys like Sitsipas and Medvedev and Rublev and Shapovalov and Felix that are all in that age bracket where they're going to emerge and take over from the, the big three and Djokovic when he's gone. So it's it's tough. Um, I think of the guys that I've seen, uh, Seb Korda has the best chance, let's put it that way. But I'm, I'm not sure I predict a Grand Slam championship for him, but I, I think Grand Slam runs and competition for sure you mentioned Tsitsipas there I mean he's now had two successive first round defeats at Wimbledon now he could say he missed a year between those two but lost to Fabiano first round two years ago lost first round here should he be worried I'm sure he's frustrated and concerned because I think he's probably been hearing for a long time he's going to be a great grass court player just anybody who watches his game and and his athleticism his ability to improvise the one-hander pretty good slice I think he's a fine volleyer going to get better but likes it up there so I mean I'm sure he's been hearing that you know, you're destined for greatness at Wimbledon Stefano so maybe that's part of the problem a little bit I personally believe in his in his upside going forward I think he's going to do really well here I think he'll win here personally um, but I think it's going to take 
maybe a denser grass court schedule uh, for him leading in. Maybe he has to play a bit more on it if he can and play, you know, the full Wimbledon lead up in the years to come. But no, I think his game fits fits the surface very well. We obviously had a few talking points. In particular, there was a, five, a number of people who fell over on the grass, whether it was more slippery than normal. I mean, I suppose we can debate that until the cows come home. We also saw a lot of use of the squash shot. Now, I know you used that one of your pieces in the New York Times. You looked at the, uh, the use of the squash shot in tennis. I mean, is it a squash shot or is it just a sliced forehand? I mean, you go back and look at old video. I, mean, I was watching Yvonne play uh, you know, Margaret Court in the 71 final at Wimbledon because of the success of Ash Barty here. So I went back and watched you know, 15 minutes of that. And Yvonne sliced all her forehands. The difference in the squash shot that we're talking about now is just, is the, I think, the force of the shot, the swing speed, the contact point, and the way they can just take a full rip off balls that would have been impossible to respond to that way before and, and deliver a really crisp, hard slice I wrote about Federer because I feel like he's not the guy who invented the shot. I mean, the Aussies were hitting it before, too. And you've seen guys like Brugheri use it back on clay back I in the day. I think of it as a shot that emerged on the clay. Yeah, he might have called I think Rogers even called it the Spanish shot at times in his career. But I think he's popularized it. And if you talk to some of the women, I mean, Kleister's used it as well. But a lot of them talk about Roger and the use of it. And, I mean, I watched the French Open final this year. Barbora Krajikova used it all the time. And so it's a great... I think it's a great, not innovation, but a great development to see that side of the court suddenly come into play with the slice and also an attacking slice. And I take it your article is still available online about the squash shot? It is. I hope people get a chance to check it out. Yeah. I mean, it, but it, is, it definitely is not just Roger's invention, let's be clear, but it's, I think it's Roger's popularization. How does Wimbledon set us up for the next few weeks of the tour, in particular the Olympics, the two hardcourt Masters 1000 events in North America, and then the U.S. Open? Well, the Olympics is really interesting because of, uh, obviously, the, the pandemic year and and all the defections, if you will, and people who have backed out of it. I mean, Americans generally are, I guess you can look at guys like Roddick and Sampras didn't really follow the Olympic uh, flame all the way too often. But there's a lot of interest in Olympics in our country. So to see all of our men's players sort of basically the top guys back out of it, even a young guy like Corda, I mean, his parents are obviously have a international sports background and his sisters are both going as golfers. So it's surprising that he would say no. He has a very long-range view. But as far as the overall feel of it, I think the Olympics is going to be a, it's a watered-down event, unfortunately. You know, without Nadal there, it's, it's hard to say it's a representative tournament and um, too many top guys missing. U.S. Open, I think the exciting thing about it, unless something crazy happens, Chris, it's going to be open gates, full stadium, you know, the tournament back to normal really in a lot of ways. We'll see who's left standing after this busy period of time in tennis. It's always the issue in Olympic years to see who's able to be healthy. I think it'll be a great atmosphere there, and I think you know Americans and American tennis fans are kind of ready to party at this point, and that'll be a good place to do it. Well, let's hope they have something to celebrate. Sticking with Wimbledon, but going back 50 years, it was in 1971 that Stan Smith lost a five-set final here to John Newcomb. A year later, he was the champion, beating Ilina Stasi in another five-setter to take the title on the 50th anniversary of the opening of Centre Court. So that means next year, the 50th anniversary of Smith's title will coincide with the centenary of Centre Court. I was lucky enough to speak with Stan Smith during this Wimbledon, and I asked him what link there was between him losing the 1971 final and then winning the title a year later. Well certainly it helps to have been in the final to understand what it's like, uh, the expectations, the media, the, uh, uh, the conditions and uh, just being in the, in the big match like that. I mean obviously the, the uh, semifinals are, are important but to be in a final uh, 
And I'd been in the final at the U.S. Open as well, so uh, that helped, I think, to be in a, in a big occasion like that. Both finals you played at Wimbledon were best of five sets. Both went to five, and you were two sets to one up in both. When you were two one up against John Newcomb in 71, did you feel that you had the match in your control? I did. At that point, I just uh, lost the first set. I'd won the next uh two sets but I'd won like 10 out of 13 games at some point and I really felt just a matter of uh, finishing them off in the fourth set because I beat him in the Queens Club and so I felt confident enough to do that but uh, you know he kind of fell down and, and pretended like he hurt his uh, wrist or something I kind of lost a little bit of concentration and of course as we all know it's tough to finish off a match anyway so it was it was uh, I thought I was going to win. I started thinking about my speech for the Wimbledon ball that night. And by the time I figured out a pretty good speech, I was congratulating him for winning the match. You said he fell over and pretended he hurt his wrist. I mean, the implication of that is that there was a little bit of uh, gamesmanship in there. Yeah, definitely was the case. But, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sharp enough to figure it out. Is that an early form of winning ugly? <laughs> Not necessarily ugly, but uh, it was kind of a fun prank that, uh, you know, did throw me off a little bit. When did the Stan Smith shoe first happen? Because in these days, a whole new generation know you, but through the name of your shoe. Well, it's about 50 years as well. It's uh, really 72, 73 is when it came out. Uh, it came out in 65 with Robert Hayet, uh on the shoe, and then in 71... 72, they, they wanted to get a stronger presence in the United States, and so they wanted an American, and I happened to be the American, the number one player in the world. So uh, we got an agreement to, to have both Haye and my name or my picture on the shoe and his name, and then there's several iterations of the shoe. And um, by 72, in 72 or 73, my name was on the shoe, so it's coming on to 50 years there too. Do you plan a celebration next year for the 50th anniversary? I do. I, uh, you know, I hope that we uh, do something special with the shoe, and uh, I think we will do something. Maybe that it's the golden anniversary, so maybe it'll be a, a more of a some gold on the shoe or whatever. But uh, I know they're thinking about it as well. You recently did a, a sort of fun film come advert for the shoe with Jessica Corder, um, Peter Corder's daughter, Sebastian Corder's sister, when. Uh, you're, she was hitting tennis balls to you with her golf clubs. With the four iron, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was actually for the golf shoe, the Stan Smith golf shoe. And they're, they're doing four models this year. They did one in green for the Masters, and then the white one, which uh, she was wearing, was for the U.S. Open. And then they're doing another white one with, uh, with black spotches around it as, uh, as one for the Ryder Cup, which is in Wisconsin for the cows. It's going to have a pink bottom. For the other udder of the cows, and then they have a black one they'll have for the Zozo tournament in Japan at the end of the year. And did you actually spend a lot of time with Jessica to make that film? We spent the day together, and we've been communicating since then. You know, following her success and Nelly's success, as well as uh, Seb's success. And so I was, I was uh, texting her during the match, uh, the fifth set yesterday with uh, with Corda. I mean, Peter Corda was just coming on the scene when you quit i mean you played your last tournaments about 83 84 yes 84 he was a youngster then did you remember him from your playing days not really i i didn't really see him play too much i mean i, I followed it obviously after that i played in the 
in the major events in the 35 and over event and and so I, I certainly saw him play and uh, I remember the scissor kick uh, like everybody else but uh, he was a good player and I've gotten to know him a little bit over the years not too much but uh, it's been fun to follow his, his daughters and his son it's unbelievable actually and so what do you make of Seb I was very impressed with him I was a little disappointed in his reaction in the fifth set uh, he was against Hachanov yeah he was kind of complaining a little bit with uh, different things and and his strategy wise uh, you know he was serving to uh, serving to his forehand and he, he was chipping and he wasn't really taking advantage of coming in and taking that ball in the air instead of just letting it bounce and getting to a rally but you know I, I've been very impressed with him in general he's got uh, a great feel for the game he has um, uh, a, a great disposition as, but I, I you know I was a little concerned about it the other day but uh, in general he's he moves so smoothly hits the ball so smoothly he's got what I call liquid power you know it's it's a very smooth but uh, generates good pace are there any other youngsters who you have associations with who you're getting excited about well Tiafo certainly has continued to improve and and uh, I think he's still got opportunity to move forward and and have some real success in the big tournaments uh, and there's a there's a few other players Taylor Fritz uh, you know has, has done well and I think he's he's still progressing He's working hard, so I think he has a shot to do some damage in the big tournaments. We talked about the past, we talked about the future with some of the promising youngsters. What about the present? Are you happy with the, or, or, or reassured by the state of today's tennis? You know, there's some good things and bad things. You know, it's, uh, I think internationally it's become uh, very strong. In some countries it's more strong than others. In the United States, unfortunately, tennis is... Uh, still a minor sport a lot of the great you know to have a great player you have to have a great athlete in most cases and I think this Anz uh, Jabur is, is showing you know she's a great athlete uh, Barty is the same way they're great athletes and so you you know you can have players that are good strikers of the ball but if they're not great athletes they really can't be uh, with some exceptions have the ability to win a major tournament so we have some great players out there today. I actually am excited about the men and the women out there today. Uh, it's very interesting to see what's going to happen with these three guys, you know, hang up their rackets uh, with Federer, Nadal, and, and Djokovic. Certainly, you can't bury any of those guys right now. Certainly, Federer is closer to retiring than the other two, but um, certainly Djokovic is as fit as he's ever been, and Nadal has played unbelievable tennis and even at the French when he lost so I don't think he's going away too soon so but at some point those three guys are not going to be in the picture and who's going to take their place and you know Zarev is there team is there um, we're getting some other young guys that are coming along CeCe Poss is uh, certainly uh, a great player and 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 he's going to win a, a grand slam as those other guys and so but I don't know if there's a dominant type of a player like we've had with those three guys. I mean, to those three guys winning, you know, 90% of the Grand Slams the last 15 years is pretty amazing.
the voice there of Stan Smith. And Chris, for a man known to the younger generation, and you have three daughters, I have one, um, he's known mainly as, uh, to them as the guy with the shoe. In fact, very few people would know that he won uh, Wimbledon and the US Open and uh, the first ever Masters uh, tournament. Uh, he's still very much a part of today's tennis scene, isn't he? It's funny. Yeah, my daughters, they would have probably no idea he won Wimbledon. I mean, he's a shoe. I mean, not, 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 not kind of a shoe, he is That's a shoe. That's the name of his book, wasn't it? They think I'm a shoe. Yeah, they do. And I guess in a way, you know, Stan's got that natural humility and, and uh, personality to be able to laugh about it and enjoy it and enjoy being part of culture any way he can. I think he needs, uh, like Michael Jordan's got his shoe, and people know Michael Jordan was a great NBA player, obviously a little bit more recent. So I think you know, Stan needs his last dance documentary at some point here to kind of remind everybody what he used to do on a tennis court. What a great idea. I'm sure somebody will start making that fairly soon. Maybe for the 50th anniversary of his Wimbledon title next year. My thanks to Christopher Clary from the New York Times. And that's it from this week's ATP podcast. Wimbledon may be over, but there's plenty more action, questions and drama to come throughout the rest of the season. And we'll be back with another podcast next Sunday as we start to look ahead to the Olympics. For now, though, from me, Chris Bowers at Wimbledon, it's bye-bye.